Picture this, if you will. A 62-year-old male with a history of diabetes mellitus is brought to the emergency department by his daughter for altered mental status. He's normally as sharp as you or me, says his daughter worriedly, and he's completely independent. He's just been living with me for the past few days after being discharged from the hospital for a hip fracture. But I'm a single mom. I can't be with him all day. She explains that she thinks he's been eating and drinking poorly, and that when she tried to check his blood sugar today, the glucometer simply read high. You examine the patient, who appears lethargic and is mumbling unintelligibly. The surgical side appears clean and dry, but his lips are cracked and his tongue is bone dry. Vitals reveal a heart rate of 136, but a normal respiratory rate, blood pressure, temperature, and oxygen saturation. What do you suspect is causing the patient's change in mental status, and what circumstances might have led him to develop this condition? And welcome to Audio Bricks. I'm Arjun Iyer, bringing topics from endocrinology from our bricks to your ears. Today, we're going to be talking about the hyperglycemic emergency known as hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state, or HHS, and how it compares to its more famous cousin, diabetic ketoacidosis, or DKA. After completing this section, you'll be able to 1. In broad terms, describe HHS and contrast this with DKA. 2. Describe the clinical presentation of HHS. 3. Describe the pathophysiology underlying HHS and how this compares to that of DKA. 4. Describe the diagnostic lab findings in HHS. And 5. Outline the treatment of HHS. Part 1. What is hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state? While the management of diabetes mellitus primarily focuses on preventing its long-term complications that develop over many years, in rare circumstances, a patient's diabetes can lead to a metabolic emergency that needs to be immediately corrected and managed in the hospital. And while diabetic ketoacidosis, or DKA, is the most well-known diabetic emergency, the most dangerous one is the related illness known as hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state, or HHS. Now, in DKA, the metabolic crisis is caused by a critical insulin deficiency that results in hyperglycemia from the cell's inability to utilize circulating glucose and metabolic acidosis that results from the compensatory breakdown of lipids into the acidic ketone bodies. In HHS, on the other hand, the relative insulin insufficiency isn't quite as severe. And at this point, you might be wondering, how does a less severe insulin insufficiency lead to a more serious illness? Don't worry, we'll explore that one in a lot of detail. But suffice to say that when the insulin insufficiency isn't as severe, the body doesn't undergo aggressive ketogenesis like it does with DKA. But the metabolic acidosis from ketogenesis is what causes most of the symptoms of DKA. And without those symptoms to warn the patient of an impending metabolic crisis, blood glucose levels can progressively increase to levels far beyond those usually found in DKA. And this causes not only a correspondingly more severe dehydration, but also complications arising from profoundly elevated serum osmolarity. Now, while we're comparing DKA to HHS, you should know that one of the most important differences between the two is who tends to get HHS versus DKA. While patients with DKA tend to be younger patients with type 1 diabetes mellitus, patients with HHS are almost exclusively older patients with type 2 diabetes. And like its cousin DKA, HHS commonly develops in the setting of an acute illness like ischemic heart disease or stroke or sepsis or pancreatitis. 
It can be precipitated either by the use of diabetogenic medications by glucocorticoids or, more commonly, be caused by the undertreatment of diabetes or lack of adherence to the treatment regimen. But a key condition that more commonly leads to HHS than DKA is dehydration. Like DKA, HHS is a critical illness, and both the disease and the treatment can be fatal. These patients require admission to an ICU, where the treatment can be carefully monitored and adjusted, and physicians must be on high alert for HHS in their patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus. All right, pop quiz time. What are some of the major triggers for HHS? Common triggers include acute illnesses, glucocorticoids, undertreatment of diabetes or non-adherence, and specifically, dehydration. Part 2. How does a patient with hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state present? The symptoms that precede HHS in patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus are just like the initial presentation of type 1 diabetes, polydipsia, polyuria, and weight loss due to severe hyperglycemia. But unlike DKA, where the symptoms become abruptly more severe once ketogenesis begins, the symptoms of HHS generally develop over days to weeks and are characterized by signs of dehydration, like decreased skin turgor, dry oral mucosa, low jugular venous pressure, tachycardia, and even hypotension in cases of critical hypovolemia. Like with DKA, a hallmark of HHS is the presence of neurologic symptoms, including blurred vision, headache, altered mental status, and seizures. But while altered mental status in DKA is the result of metabolic acidosis, the neurologic symptoms in HHS are related to the elevated serum osmolarity. As hyperglycemia worsens and serum osmolarity increases, water follows its osmotic gradient and exits the cells of the brain. In addition, since the hyperosmolar state and intravascular volume depletion of HHS can trigger thrombosis, patients may actually present with a thrombotic stroke or new-onset seizures. Finally, always be aware that a patient's chief complaint may be another acute physiologic stressor, like pneumonia or a myocardial infarction. But if the patient has diabetes mellitus, remember, those acute stressors can also lead to HHS. Time for a knowledge check, gang. Why do patients with HHS have neurologic symptoms? Patients with HHS develop neurologic symptoms because of the osmotic water loss from the brain caused by extremely hypertonic serum. Part 3. What is the pathophysiology of hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state? The pathogenesis of HHS centers around hyperglycemia and hyperosmolarity. First, a physiologic stressor, such as an underlying infection, myocardial infarction, or dehydration, will cause the release of hormones like epinephrine, cortisol, glucagon, and growth hormone. Now, normally, these stress hormones mobilize the macronutrients needed to correct or compensate for the stressor as part of the fight-or-flight response. The consequence is that these hormones all act to increase blood sugar levels and are often referred to as diabetogenic. These act by accelerating gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis in the liver and decreasing glucose utilization by the tissues. And God help you if you also happen to have poorly controlled diabetes. In these patients, the process can cause blood sugars to rise in excess of 1,000 milligrams per deciliter, as in 10 times the normal blood glucose. Yeah, now you see why osmolarity becomes such a big deal, because at that point, your blood's basically the consistency of simple syrup. 
The increased serum osmolarity causes water to move from inside the cells to the outside by osmosis. The kidneys, which normally reabsorb all the glucose from the urine, lose their ability to do so above a mere 270 mg per deciliter. And the higher the glucose, the more glucose gets filtered into the urine, increasing the urine's osmolarity as well. And that high osmolarity causes water to be drawn into the tubule, leading to osmotic diuresis, or water loss, into the urine. In more severe cases, this can actually lead to hypovolemic shock, leading to dizziness and tachycardia. Sodium and potassium are also lost to the urine by osmotic drag, and the additional loss of sodium contributes to the volume depletion. In severe cases, a patient with HHS can have 8 to 10 liters of water deficit. Potassium abnormalities are a critical and potentially lethal feature of HHS. And you may be thinking, ah, I know, with all the potassium lost in the urine, a patient with HHS should be severely hypokalemic, right? Well, actually, it's a bit more complicated than that. First, remember that the concentration of potassium, like any concentration, is equal to the total amount of serum potassium divided by the total amount of serum water. And generally speaking, patients with HHS generally lose more water than they do potassium. But there's another dimension to this, and I'm going to need you to rack your brains for this one. Where is most of the body's potassium stored? Inside the cells. Potassium is a primarily intracellular ion because of the effects of the sodium-potassium pump. You know, three sodiums out, two potassiums in. Now here's where things get really fun. And by fun, I mean dangerous. While you're losing potassium in the hypertonic urine by osmotic drag, the hypertonic serum also favors a disproportionate movement of potassium out of the cells and into the serum by the very same principle. In addition, the very sodium-potassium pump that's responsible for keeping potassium primarily inside the cells is stimulated by none other than our friend insulin. That's why part of the treatment for hyperkalemia is insulin. But in HHS, which is characterized by a relative insulin deficiency, there will be less sodium-potassium pump activity, which additionally favors the movement of potassium out into the serum. So, to sum it all up, a patient with HHS will always have low total body potassium, since they're losing it in their urine along with a whole bunch of water. But the serum concentration of potassium is more likely to be normal, or even elevated. Whoa, crazy town. Now, it may seem like I'm really nitpicking this point, but trust me, we'll definitely come back to it when we discuss treatment. Understanding the weird, disrupted potassium homeostasis is actually critical to being able to treat your patients without literally killing them. But for now, we're going to wrap up this pathophysiology section by explaining why HHS and DKA, which are both hyperglycemic emergencies, have dramatically different metabolic consequences. And the key is in the relative degree of insulin deficiency. Relatively speaking, you have to have practically no insulin in order to provoke the type of aggressive fatty acid metabolism and ketogenesis that characterizes DKA. I mean, even a tiny trickle of insulin will usually suppress it. For that reason, DKA is typically associated with type 1 diabetes, since autoimmune destruction of the beta cells eventually causes the secreted insulin to plummet to zero, unless supplemented by pharmaceutical insulin. The relative insulin deficiency required for hyperglycemia to develop, however, is substantially less. And like I mentioned earlier, all those stress hormones we talked about that get elevated during physiologic stressors can also contribute to the hyperglycemia via their own pathways. Now, that's the simple answer, and for answering test questions, that's enough. But some of you are probably wondering why the heck I keep saying the word relative so often, and if you notice that, 
good pickup. Like with all hormone signaling, the effect of insulin is determined by how much of it is in the blood and how sensitive the target cells are to insulin. And unlike type 1 diabetes, type 2 is initially characterized by insulin resistance by the target cells. The pancreas responds by trying to increase the secretion of insulin, but the slightly increased secretion isn't enough to completely compensate for the much greater increase in insulin resistance. So, while the absolute concentration of insulin may initially increase, you're still left with a relative insulin deficiency. But that relative deficiency is generally milder than you see with type 1 diabetics. And like I mentioned, without the symptoms provoked by abrupt, aggressive ketogenesis, the glucose levels tend to rise higher and higher than those found in DKA until you start getting the symptoms of extreme hyperosmolarity. Now, finally, there's a couple of misconceptions I'd like to address. First one is that DKA is only found in patients with type 1 diabetes. That's not true, actually, especially since over the disease course of type 2 diabetes, the beta cells actually start to lose their ability to secrete insulin, which, in addition to the very high insulin resistance, dramatically increases the relative insulin deficiency. So, patients with type 2 diabetes can get DKA as well. The second misconception is that patients with HHS should be expected to have normal serum ketones, a myth promoted by the old name for this disease, hyperosmolar non-ketotic syndrome. But this is actually also not true. Dehydration in and of itself generally results in elevated ketones, and patients with HHS are super dehydrated. But you're not going to find that kind of aggressive ketogenesis that leads to physiologically significant metabolic acidosis, at least not in HHS. Got all that? I know, the physiology is pretty intense. But like I said, treating this condition requires constant monitoring and a pretty comprehensive understanding of the physiology. So let's review real quick before moving on. What are the key metabolic findings in HHS? The key metabolic findings in HHS are hyperglycemia and hyperosmolarity. And these lead to dehydration and a loss of total body potassium with normal to elevated serum potassium concentration. And remember, unlike with DKA, there isn't sufficient ketogenesis to cause a physiologically significant metabolic acidosis. Part 4. How do we diagnose hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state? The diagnosis of HHS is suggested by the initial clinical presentation, and both clinical evidence of dehydration as well as altered mental status are features that point towards HHS. Ultimately, though, the diagnosis is clearly established by laboratory evidence of severe hyperglycemia with minimal ketoacidosis. Now, according to the American Diabetic Association, the serum glucose concentration should be above 600 mg per deciliter in order for the diagnosis of HHS to be considered. Correspondingly, the serum osmolarity should be above 320 milliosmoles per liter. Now, just for reference, the blood glucose levels in DKA only need to be above 250 to qualify. The American Diabetic Association is a bit less clear as to what constitutes minimal ketoacidosis. They just sort of vaguely state that in HHS, the level of urine ketones are usually only slightly elevated, and the level of serum ketones are generally either normal or slightly elevated. Now, they do say that, unlike in DKA, the arterial pH should be greater than 7.3 which is basically saying that the degree of ketoacidosis does not cause physiologically significant acidemia. Now, here's an argent point. 
you got to be careful with that criterion. HHS, remember, can be provoked by a lot of physiologic stressors, many of which can decrease the pH in other ways besides ketosis. I mean, take sepsis, for example. You can get HHS, but also lactic acidosis that drops your pH below 7.3. You can also have altered mental status with HHS that causes a seizure or respiratory depression, both of which are capable of causing acidemia. Look, all I'm saying is, be careful, and don't assume that a patient has DKA and not HHS, just because their pH is less than 7.3. In addition, the metabolic dysregulation also leads to a number of other laboratory abnormalities that aren't a part of the diagnostic criteria, but are things that you should be able to identify and anticipate. Firstly, hyponatremia. The high blood glucose draws water out of the cells, diluting the blood and specifically decreasing the serum sodium concentration. Note, this does not need to specifically be treated. The hyponatremic symptoms, as seen in SIADH, for example, are not present because the serum osmolarity is not decreased. It's high, remember? Hyperosmolar hyperglycemic syndrome? Second, like we mentioned, the potassium homeostasis is generally very disrupted. The total body potassium is uniformly decreased, but the serum potassium concentration is usually normal or elevated. It may even be decreased, depending on the patient's insulin levels and the degree of dehydration. So, while potassium supplementation will be needed eventually, you need to be aware of the patient's serum potassium concentration before administering potassium chloride willy-nilly, and that can absolutely give your patients a lethal arrhythmia. Finally, elevations in BUN and creatinine are very common. And these results are elevated because of the massive dehydration that occurs, leading to pre-renal acute kidney injury. Normally, volume repletion should reverse this abnormality. Part 5. How do we treat hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state? Remember, friends, HHS, it's no joke. It's a metabolic emergency like DKA. And since patients with HHS tend to be older and with physiologic stressors that make them sicker, the prognosis for HHS is generally worse than that of DKA. Resuscitation of HHS centers around the treatment of three main physiologic problems, dehydration, hyperglycemia, and potassium abnormalities. Now, dehydration should be addressed first, for reasons I'll explain later. And IV crystalloid fluid boluses are a mainstay of treatment, and will treat not only the hypovolemia, but also begin to treat the elevated blood glucose and serum osmolarity, as well as resuscitate any acute kidney injury. Normal saline and balanced crystalloid solutions like lactated ringers are used, though with the amount of fluids you generally have to give these patients, excessive normal saline may cause hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. No more than 4 liters should be given in the first 4 hours to avoid neurologic damage caused by massive fluid shifts. Often, large amounts of fluid are needed over the first few days, though. Sometimes in excess of 10 liters, when the serum glucose drops below 300 mg per deciliter, the IV fluids should have dextrose added to them to prevent overcorrecting the glucose and triggering a hypoglycemic episode. Second, insulin will be required to correct the relative insulin deficiency that is, after all, the root cause of HHS. But remember that insulin should always be started after, not before, the IV fluids. And the reason is, the consequence of insulin administration is generally a lot higher. It can abruptly decrease both glucose and potassium, which can be just as lethal as HHS itself. For this reason, insulin is typically administered in a careful, controlled manner using an IV infusion, 
making sure to regularly check both the glucose and potassium to avoid critically decreasing either. Next, always anticipate that the treatment for HHS will cause a rapid decrease in serum potassium because of the combination of serum dilution with IV fluids and the intracellular shift of potassium from the insulin. The catch is that when a patient comes in, you don't know if their serum concentration of potassium is going to be high, normal, or even low. And it's also hard to predict exactly how fast the potassium will fall with treatment. The only thing you know for sure is that because the patient's total body potassium is low, at some point during the treatment, the patient will become hypokalemic without your intervention, which, like I said, can actually kill them. And this is what I mean when I say that the treatment for HHS can kill just as easily as HHS itself if you're not paying attention, so you need to be checking the electrolytes regularly. When the serum potassium levels are lower than 5.3 milliEQs per liter, potassium chloride should be added to the IV solution, and the patient will likely need additional oral or IV potassium boluses to supplement the additional potassium that's been added to the IV fluids. And finally, Always remember to thoroughly evaluate for and treat the underlying trigger that provokes the patient's HHS. Patients with HHS are generally older and with more comorbidities than those with DKA, and the triggers are often correspondingly more dangerous. Sepsis and other infections need prompt antibiotics, acute coronary syndrome requires emergent coronary revascularization, and patient medications and drug toxicities need to be identified and managed appropriately. Upon recovery from their critical illness, patients should also be counseled on the importance of staying hydrated, maintaining good glycemic control, and recognizing the early warning signs of HHS. Alright, final knowledge check, guys. What are the three main physiologic disturbances that must be treated in HHS? The three main physiologic disturbances are dehydration, hyperglycemia, and potassium abnormalities. And that's a wrap. Let's see how well you know the pathophysiology of hyperosmolar hyperglycemic syndrome. Remember, physiology is key. First, can you broadly describe HHS and how it's different from DKA? HHS is a type of diabetic emergency primarily driven by extremely high blood glucose levels that lead to symptoms of serum hyperosmolarity as well as hypovolemia. In HHS, the metabolic acidosis caused by the diabetic emergency isn't physiologically significant, but the hyperglycemia, hyperosmolarity, and dehydration are typically much worse than in DKA. Second, can you describe the patient population who tends to present with HHS and how they present? HHS, unlike DKA, typically presents in elderly patients with type 2 diabetes. And HHS typically presents with symptoms of profound dehydration and, in more severe cases, altered mental status, seizures, or even coma. And just as with DKA, patients with HHS may be primarily seeking medical attention for the medical problem that triggered their HHS, like chest pain, fever and chills, or flank pain. Third, can you explain why diabetic emergencies tend to cause severe acidosis in patients with type 1 diabetes, but not in patients with type 2 diabetes? The reason is, the widespread ketogenesis found in DKA, 
can only occur with a critical relative insulin insufficiency. Typically, patients with type 2 diabetes have relative insulin levels high enough to suppress ketogenesis, but allow hyperglycemia to occur. Problem is, without the symptoms of metabolic acidosis that usually send DKA patients to the ER, the blood glucose can continue to increase over longer periods of time, until they reach truly critical levels. And finally, can you list the three most important steps in the treatment of HHS in order? The most important steps in treatment are IV fluids, then insulin, then potassium correction. Now, armed with your newfound knowledge, let's get back to that patient from the intro. A 62-year-old male with type 2 diabetes and a recent hip fracture is brought to the emergency department by his daughter for altered mental status. Physical exam reveals tachycardia and signs of dehydration, and his daughter reports a glucometer reading of high. What do you suspect is causing the patient's change in mental status, and what do you suspect may have precipitated his medical condition? You check a finger stick glucose immediately, which confirms that the levels are too high to be read by a glucometer. And in the context of clinical dehydration, you strongly suspect a diabetic emergency. While the reasons for altered mental status in a 62-year-old post-operative patient are numerous, he has no fever, no signs of infection, and no rapid Kussmaul breathing characteristic of DKA. Given his age and history of type 2 diabetes, you suspect hyperosmolar hyperglycemic syndrome. By the time labs return and confirm your diagnosis, you've already administered a liter of normal saline. And after noting the potassium of 5.7, you immediately order an insulin drip while hanging another liter of IV fluids. Afterwards, you talk to the patient's daughter about the last few days since he came home from the hospital, and she tearfully admits that because of work and childcare needs, her father was generally home alone for more than 15 hours at a time. He didn't want to go to a rehab facility, she cries, and he never complains, but he must have been in such pain. I don't think I saw him get out of bed once. When he gets a little better, you reassure her, the hospitalists are going to have this conversation with him again. And no matter how independent he is, please remind him that this is a matter of life and death. Not only does he need physical therapy to help him move better, but if he's stuck in bed without access to fresh water or his diabetes medications, it could easily lead to another diabetic emergency just like this one. Remember, we could all use a little help from time to time. And that's our show. If you like what you heard, make sure to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the full Bricks experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time, friends. 